Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. So the energy revolution will bring, and is already bringing, a more flexibility, innovation, collaboration in a smart network of technology and consumers. But of course... This energy revolution in place uh, is bringing additional challenges to the market, especially to the market design, and also a need for an evolution of current regulatory and policy regimes. This is crucial, and this is the the thing we have to tackle the most. I'm very pleased to welcome Drawdown Senior Fellow João Pedro Gavaya to the podcast. João is an environmental engineer with a PhD in climate change and sustainable development policies at the Centre for Environmental and Sustainability Research from the Faculty of Sciences and Technology at Nova University of Lisbon, where he also works as a research associate addressing and modelling energy systems and performing related economic and policy analysis. So thank you very much, Zhao, for taking the time today uh, to join me on the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, thank you for the invitation. So can you talk a little bit about your background, Rao, and how you got involved with Drawdown and your role there? So I have a PhD on climate change and sustainable development policies from Nova University of Lisbon in Portugal. I'm a research associate also there. And uh, I'm a senior fellow for energy systems and specifically electric generation sector at Project Drawdown. Great. Great. So what was the your, your goal? What were you trying to do? So at Project Drawdown, our objective is really to list the solution and understand if we can reach Drawdown. So we wanted to assess all the sectors that can contribute to that goal. And uh, I was responsible for the electric generation solution. So from wind to solar, uh, nuclear energy and other other options of renewable energy sources. Right, you've got the short straw, the easy one then. <laughs> Something quite easy to, to summarize. Can you maybe just set the scene a little bit and uh, talk about maybe the, the scale of the global energy system and you know how it operates, maybe just roughly a breakdown of fossil fuels and renewable energy sources? Well, uh, energy is a fundamental driver of everything we do. And global energy demand grew by more than 50% between... 1973 and 2015 and this is was really supported by fossil fuels which accounted for more than 81 percent of primary energy consumption but when we look just to electricity generation and evaluating major trends we have seen that uh, more or less in the last 35 years uh, generation of electricity have grown from 7,000 terawatts hour to just over 22,000 And this was mainly due to new uses and an electrification trend in the different uh, end uses. And this is because electricity is a more convenient and controllable form of energy. Right, right. Now, you mentioned um, fossil fuels, and I guess that's something that struck me looking at recent figures and recent graphs and so forth, is the continuing presence of 
fossil fuels, notwithstanding the growth and uh, fast growth and falling costs. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit about renewable energy sources, but it just does seem to be still very present. Yes, from on the total electric generation, uh, fossil fuels still represent 67%, so it's uh, really a large number, and nuclear around 11%, and renewable energy sources just over 24%. But uh, attention, because the bulk is uh, more or less 18% is from large hydropower systems, 2% only from biomass and waste, and only the remaining four are a combination of wind, solar, and geothermal. So as you can see, this is still very residual. We have a long way to go on this. But one interesting thing is that when you look to the last 25 years, uh, it took uh, this time to multiply by 10 the share of renewable energy sources in the power system. And in the last decade, we have seen that uh, significant growth was made. And now on wind specifically, and now we are starting to see that growth in solar. This is because, of course, solar photovoltaic modules are now more than 80% cheaper than they were, I don't know, 2010. And uh, wind turbine prices also have fallen on average by around half over a similar period. This might already show the future trends and what we might see on the development of the energy system. Because in a couple of years, all mainstream renewable power generation technologies probably can be expected to provide average costs at the lower end of the fossil fuel cost range. So this is important. Right, right. Now, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, nuclear as well? Because I understand that's a part of the picture when we see the growth that there has been in renewable energy. And yet there some countries are stepping back. Um, many countries are stepping back from nuclear, uh, some more aggressively than others. Well, um, 29 countries have operative nuclear plants. Uh, so they produce, uh, as I just said, 11% of the world's electricity. And it represents a significant amount of current generation at the global level. So, so this is really relevant. But since it's really expensive, um, most of the plants will not be decommissioned earlier than they're expecting in the lifetime as an overall uh, average. Um, at Project Drawdown, we consider nuclear as a regret solution. Um, it has the potential, of course, to avoid greenhouse gas emissions compared to coal or natural gas. But of course, there are uh, many reasons for concern. So we have the legacy wastes, we have deadly meltdowns, uh, tritium releases, abandoned uranium mines. Uh, the so, so this means probably that the social impacts and other environmental externalities might not justify its increased adoption. Right, right. Can you explain uh, what a regret solution is? So it's it's a solution uh, that has a potential, of course, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because that was the goal uh, at Project Drawdown. But th their social and environmental impacts might be uh, really significant. So it's not a solution we want to adopt uh, vigorously as mostly all, all the other solutions represented in Project Drawdown. Right, right. Now, can you talk a little bit about, because we talked about the falling costs, the dramatic falling costs, particularly with wind and, and also increasingly with solar. Yet, um, we talked about fossil fuels still being very present. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of subsidies and fossil fuel subsidies? Uh, how important are they in the continue, continuation of fossil fuels? And how do you see that playing out? So, Energy subsidies in general artificially lower the price of energy paid by the consumers or raise the price received by producers or lower the cost of production. So when we look to subsidies supporting fossil fuels, they represent greater threats to the environment specifically. So the elimination of fossil fuel subsidies uh, worldwide 
would be the one of the most effective ways of reducing greenhouse gases. Uh, from a, a study last year, it was estimated that at the global level, fossil fuel subsidies were about $5.3 trillion uh, in 2015, which represents 6.5% 6 of the global uh, GDP. And chi China and the United States were among the biggest subsidizers, and more or less 60% of the su subsidies are for oil, uh, and the remainder is largely for natural gas. There is less subsidies now for, for coal and for coal power plants. And of course, on this, there is the, the urgent need for a broader reform of fossil fuel prices in order to include and to, to fully reflect the costs of um, associated with global warming and other environmental externalities, of course. Important also on this context of subsidies and fossil fuels is the um, stop fossil fuel prospecting and start decreasing their extraction. We need to keep them in the ground if we want to, to um, get to the objectives we set for climate. Yes. And so what kind of assumptions have you made about the rate of decrease or elimination of subsidies? How important is that in your modeling, Drow? So uh, in Project Drawdown, we don't model uh, incentive-based policies and financial mechanisms, such, for example, uh, a carbon tax or a congestion price, uh, even subsidies and taxes. Uh, we focus on technological, ecological, and behavioral solutions. So because our aim was really to analyze these existing solutions as they are, uh, for their potential to reduce and draw down greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and not to play and work around with assumptions on future trends of subsidies and taxes and so on. Right, right, absolutely. So um, assuming in a sense that the subsidies continue, therefore, it's quite a conservative vision of how things are going to pan out. I mean, how important is that in terms of, would you say, today maintaining the status quo to the extent that we have done with fossil fuels? So um, a, a portfolio of renewable energy technologies is becoming uh, cost competitive in an increasingly broad range of circumstances. So in some cases, providing investment opportunities without the need for specific economic support when looking to renewable energy. So, uh, of course, we have to withdraw the subsidies, start declining the, the subsidies from fossil fuels. But the cost of uh, renewable energy, electricity have fallen more rapidly than only a few believed to be possible just a few years ago. So, in, uh, for example, in northern Chile, prices obtained in auctions for solar power supply fell by 90% in 10 years. Even in less sunny Germany, price reductions of around 80% have already been achieved. Wind energy costs have fallen by around 70% and also batteries have declined by around 80% since 2010. So those subsidies in green energy technologies that are not yet competitive probably are justified in order to give an incentive to investing into technologies with positive externalities as the ones renewable energy are um, with clearly additional environmental and energy security benefits. So we can say that probably to achieve a fully decarbonized energy system, of course, there is still the need to support technological research and development on several technologies, wave technologies, energy storage systems, for example. But of course, there are um, several uh, technologies that we see that uh, giving an incentive, uh, they will play a, an important role in the future energy system. And since they are now in still uh, early development stages, they need more research. Absolutely. Now, we'll move on in a moment to the three uh, biggest impacts that you found in, in the study. Um, 
can you talk just at a very high level again about the uh, importance of storage and I guess importance of the energy grid as well? I know one of the critiques of our criticisms of renewable energy is that it's very lumpy. It comes at times, you know, it comes and goes and uh, the need to distribute that energy as well. And I know there's been some pretty eye popping kind of figures as well with the drop in in storage prices. If you could just maybe just paint a little bit of a picture of where they fit into the overall picture. You are right. So with the growing capacity of uh, electric generation portfolio of uh, variable renewables as wind and solar, um, of course, there is the need for the ability to retain energy produced to be used in different periods of time. So when the sunshine or breezes are not available, and there is, of course, a demand for electricity. And we can say that there are different types of uh, energy storage um, to the electricity grid. So we have, for example, um, gravitational potential energy. So this is really the pumped pumped hydroelectric energy storage. We have chemical energy storage for, for uh, from batteries. We have uh, other technologies as flywheels or compressed air energy storage. We have kind of uh, the, the, the thermal energy storage from uh, concentrated solar power technologies and possibly in the future, hydrogen storage. And let's say that storage units have several benefits. Um, uh, it's important to incorporate them on the, the systems and in the electricity grid because, of course, they enable time shifts of energy delivery, delivery as I was saying. Um, they supply additional capacity and uh, kind of a credit to delay investments in the capacity generation uh, portfolio. Also, they provide a grid operational support to facilitate the smooth of the electricity supply system, support and provide transmission and distribution uh, delay of investments also, and of course, maintain power quality and reliability. Um, so, so three men, uh, energy sources are in the top 10. Can you talk a little bit about those, Rao? How important are they? So just a, a step before on this sector, uh, on the electric generation sector at Project Rodan, we have considered 19 solutions. So they include available technologies with potential for scaling, most of them already cost effective or expected to be in the near future. So the solutions uh, include uh, several distributed electricity and deep generation solutions, utility scale renewable energy sources and a couple of enabling solutions of a massive deployment of renewable energy, such as energy storage, microgrids, and grid flexibility. And the top three um, renewable energy sources with the most impact on emissions avoidance according to our plausible scenario are wind onshore, is the second on the overall ranking. Uh, wind grows from around 3% of the market to, to near 25% in 2050. And in the plausible scenario, with the near 85 gigatons of CO2 emissions avoided. Because in many locations, wind is already competitive uh, um, or uh, less expensive than coal-generated electricity. The second solution uh, for this sector is ranked uh, on uh, eighth place on the total ranking is solar farms or utility-scale solar, solar power plants. And this is a really important solution also with its significant impacts on emissions avoidance. The third solution is also related to solar energy, solar rooftops. Uh, this comes on the third position within this sector and then 10 on the overall ranking. And this is a decentralized form of electricity generation. 
Right, very interesting. Now, wind, um, that's a tremendous increase in its scale, uh, according to the figures from your analysis. It seems to be that there's been quite a, um, important changes in technology there as well. The scale of the wind farm, uh, scale of the turbines and the locations and so forth. Can you maybe talk just a little bit about that? Well, yes. So we have seen a huge development of the technology of wind onshore in the last decade or so. Uh, we have seen uh, increased capacity factors. We have bigger turbines with bigger axes. Uh, we are already seeing in some locations uh, around the world a repowering of the the old uh, old turbines that uh, reach the end of the lifetime. So we are getting more uh, electricity in the same locations we had uh, previous previously installed the the wind turbines. And now we are seeing also the development of uh, offshore parks. So we have uh, floating uh, offshore parks starting to be um, evaluated uh, around the world. Right. So can you talk a little bit about solar farms then and, you know, how, how you expect them to grow, why they're an interesting source of renewable technology? So... Um, we, we can we can say that we have uh, four four solutions that uh, grasp the potential of solar energy. Uh, we have the part of course of solar PV rooftops. We have uh, the solar farm. So PV rooftops can be used in buildings and are small scale systems that can be applied in grid connected areas. So that we can use rooftop panels uh, that can put electricity in, in the ends of the households or in rural parts of the low-income countries, they can leapfrog and support the need for um, large-scale centralized power grids. So th they will accelerate this access to affordable and clean electricity. Regarding solar farms, they are bigger, they are utility scale level, and they take advantage of solar energy with uh, the large-scale areas of hundreds, thousands, or even millions of photovoltaic panels to produce electricity. Also regarding solar uh, energy, we, we have uh, as a solution also concentrated solar power, which is uh, technical, technologically different from photovoltaics because it's solar thermal electricity. Instead of converting uh, sunlight directly into electricity like photovoltaics do, it relies on the core technology of fossil fuel generation, so steam turbines. Therefore, the difference is then rather using cooler natural gas, concentrated solar power uses solar radiation as its primary fuel. One important thing compared to standalone PV systems is that um, concentrated solar power technology makes heat before it makes electricity and heat is easier to store. Of course, uh, when you, you can also join uh, storage systems to PV panels, so there is a bit of competition on the use of those technologies. Absolutely. Now, the fall and costs associated with both of these have been dramatic and I think probably exceeded modelling uh, at the time and, and, and what experts have thought. Is that continuing? Sure. Technology development is huge in this stage. We are seeing a, a really an energy revolution with the huge deployment of renewable energy, a lot of research in different technologies. So we will see for sure in then the coming uh, um, years and decades for some technologies because they are in different maturity levels a really huge deployment of, of this type of technologies. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I had a conversation with an energy expert who's been studying the energy system for 40 years or so, and he said a lot of what looks like innovation in the energy sector isn't really innovation at all, and actually it's been around for a long time and decades in, in, in some cases. 
Um, so, so obviously, a lot of the falling costs in the computer industry have been driven by Moore's law. I, I wanted to uh, get a sense of uh, what factors you think have helped drive down costs in the energy sector. So um, what we are seeing here is the development of technologies driven not only by, uh, of course, climate change and global warming. That's a driver for sure, in the, at least in the back mind of, of stakeholders and companies. Um, but we are seeing because people are getting hurt. So we got uh, um, sea level rising in several countries. We are seeing impact of hurricanes, uh, floods everywhere. So not only in um, in developing countries, but also in developed countries, Europe and the United States. Uh, we are seeing unhealthy conditions in cities. So air pollution, uh, we, have see, we see that a lot in China. Uh, with the coal power plants, with the the natural gas and the vehicles in the in the cities, so this is uh, this transition is not only the perspective of uh, global warming, but it's also a, a perspective of well sustainable development and and, and people's health and well being. So this supports this huge transition, and and we a long t- a few years back everybody said about the peak oil, but now we understand that's kind of a, was a theoretical thing because uh, probably we, we won't get uh, without oil anytime soon so this this transition is uh, companies and governments are understanding this is a major not only for economies for uh, to avoid resource big resource depletion uh, so th- this mix of technologies without focusing only on coal coal oil and gas it's it's really paramount for technology development, countries, uh, economies, and social uh, well well-being of, of the populations. I think that's a, a, an important thing to this development of technology. So, of course, there are um, energy technologies have distinct time frames of adoption, and of course, they are on different stages of development. So, it's common to hear that energy efficiency is a low-hanging fruit, for example, with low capital costs and huge impacts on energy savings. But then we have a lot of, uh, of technology that still are kind of costly. So when we think about uh, wind offshore or wave technology, they are starting to be developed. Of course, they have a huge potential because we have uh, the wind offshore is more constant than the wind onshore. Uh, wave technology can grasp the potential of the sea. Uh, but these are uh, not known mature technologies yet. Uh, we are still trying to understand what could be the, the winning technology and the winning mechanical system. Let's put it like that. And so some are already in the market, available, probably cheap in most locations. But others that are competing with the same markets need uh, more development and probably some support, at least R&D support. Great, great. That's very helpful. Can you talk just a little bit uh, about the transition uh, regret solutions, which we just touched on before? Uh, I'm particularly interested in discussions about natural gas and also, uh, to some extent, uh, to talk a little bit about biomass, which is, I know, a controversial topic. Yes, great. Uh, So under Project Rowdown, uh, a regret solution, of course, has a, a positive impact on overall carbon emissions. However, as I said before, the social environmental costs could be harmful and high. On uh, another situation are transition solutions, like, for example, using biomass or waste for electric generation, because they represent technologies that uh, can be used to better 
solutions and less impactful are most cost-effective and mature. For example, uh, biomass energy is only a true solution if it, it uses appropriate feedstocks, such as, for example, um, waste from mills and agriculture or sustainably grown perennial crops. Uh, we, have, we have assessed that uh, various life cycle assessment studies performed on um, annual bioenergy crops such as corn. Uh, it is shown that uh, there is they are not much better than fossil fuel energy sources in terms of climate and in energy impacts when we see the lifetime. Uh, so they are many times even worse than fossil fuels. Of course, using native forest is not a solution and is nonsense. Therefore, regarding biomass, it is crucial to, to understand and then manage the drawbacks of this type of energy for regulation. Most important is to clearly understand that biomass, uh, if carefully deployed, is a means to reach a clean energy future and not the destination itself. Yes, it's I'm always interested to understand why it's such a. Uh, it seems to have quite the support that it does, given, as you say, the underlying uh, economics and underlying efficiency of it. Yes, uh, each country tried to use their resources as they seem uh, more appropriate. I think that's the, also the, the question, because there is the potential for renewable energy is different across the world, and even fossil fuels, of course, the resources are different. So when uh, countries try to foster biomass, they are trying to use their own resources, trying to avoid energy dependence from foreign countries. So it's an option, but we have to start uh, changing that view. Yes, indeed. What about natural gas, Rao? Well, natural gas is, is sometimes seen and uh, a lot in the United States and some European countries as a bridge fuel towards a, lo a lower carbon system. But natural gas are indeed lower than the ones produced. Emissions are, the, uh, are indeed lower than the ones produced from burning coal uh, or oil, though is still a fossil fuel. So combustion of natural gas still results in continued carbon dioxide emissions. And considering that the residence time of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is thousands of years, and we have a, a clear carbon budget associated with the goals set forward in the Paris Agreement, for example, uh, thinking uh, on natural gas for electric generation as a mitigation option, of course, it risks locking of the sector into an emissions-intensive infrastructure that is clearly not aligned with the required commitment in the long term. In this way, a gas bridge could delay the widespread adoption of renewable energy across the world. Yes, it's interesting you talk about infrastructure, and clearly that's a really important question in terms of uh, what kind of change needs to happen in infrastructure and piggyback on existing infrastructures. What about uh, large-scale hydro? So uh, at Project Drawdown, we, we didn't, do not include uh, hydro as a solution, but we consider that uh, as, a, as part of the energy system and the, the electric generation portfolio till uh, 2050 in, the, in our scenarios, uh, because they, there is an existing infrastructure that represents a lot of generation. So that, that's, that's why we are in, uh, considering that in the modeling, but not as a solution to be highlighted. The environmental side effects of the creation of large reservoirs uh, of water from large uh, hydro projects are significant. So flooding land for a reservoir has an extreme environmental impact because it destroys forests, for example, wildlife habitats, agricultural land, and scenic lands, and sometimes even promotes the relocation of entire villages, as it happens in, in China, for example, with the Free Gorges Dam. Yes. 
very controversial and very uh, very problematic. Now, energy grids, we touched on them. How do they need to change to accommodate renewable energy and to really further the decarbonisation of the energy sector? So it, it, they will have to incorporate, as we have already mentioned, uh, storage systems, uh, the microgrid development, the integration of uh, smart meters. So we need a smarter network. Uh, that's what we need to try to include um, uh, more renewable energy in the system to make the, the, the grid, uh, let's say, uh, m- more smart. Um, and it's, it's, it's important to uh, integrate also uh, the Internet of Things technologies on the, on, the, um, on the grid, even on the consumer side. So probably in the future, I will not uh, uh, be the, like the, the owner of my washing machine. Uh, some utility or some application will manage when I can put it uh, working. Absolutely. Now, in terms of the questions we've been looking at here, how does it differ between the developed world and the global south? Are there a couple of important uh, features and uh, notable factors to take into account in the analysis? So looking for global south countries, uh, they are, of course, less developed on the part of uh, renewable energy integration. So what is is important to, to, to tackle in the next couple of years is to address the synergies between the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and, of course, delivering the low carbon transition as set under the Paris Agreement Goals. So this should be recognized and the global efforts behind them should be aligned. Because for for developing a system, a low carbon energy system in the global South countries, uh, it happens also on the on the developed developed countries the the importance of private capital in financing this transition. So, uh, but for the, those specific countries, there are several funds that uh, were set up by different entities. For example, the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation or the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, that directly fund um, mitigation and adaptation strategies and uh, solutions in the developing world. Um, and they have the potential to become a major force, of course, in scaling up private capital for decarbonization in the developing world, driving economy growth and the low carbon transition, and all is all also supporting the uh, SDGs, so the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations. Yes, yes. Now, you touched on a very important topic there, this question of uh, investment and capital. And I've seen some figures recently about the sums of money involved. They talk about, I think, what's some uh, trillion dollars per annum needed up to 2050 to hit the target of you know, Paris, well, you know, two degrees at least. Um, and the kind of investments we've been seeing seem to be in the scale of, you know, 200 Fifty three hundred billion, um, still you know pretty substantial sums of money. Um, can you talk a little bit about how important this investment is, or and to what extent it plays into your modelling and how you think about the transition? So um, at Project Rodan, we addressed this topic at a global level, looking for the impact of the combination of all solutions. So from replacement solutions as renewable energy technologies to reduction solutions as electric vehicles. Uh, and then to solutions that sequester carbon from the atmosphere, like a forestation. So our overall analysis, uh, combining all the solutions, show that the costs of doing business as usual are, are, are higher than the costs of implementing the solutions to global warming. Uh, when we address and include both implementation costs, operation and maintenance costs, and fuel uh, when is uh, appropriate. So 
Um, if we try to understand the, the amount of uh, money needed, for example, for decarbonization, that's a different thing. Uh, uh, and probably from our rough calculations, we can see around $155 trillion of global investment till 2050. And is is aligned with a recent study from the New Climate Foundation that reports uh, estimates uh, of the world needing to invest 90 trillion in new and replacement infrastructures by 2030. Even comparing a business as usual growth pathway or a low carbon pathway, so this is more or less six trillion dollars a year. Uh, that is about double the current levels of investment. So we need a lot of new investment coming on board. Absolutely. And in terms of financing this transition, uh, I guess looking a little bit at the implementation side of this, it's an area clearly where you know the state has an important role to play and corporates. And, um, you know, what, can you talk a little bit about the role of different stakeholders? So uh, as I just mentioned, we need uh, really uh, a lot of investment and we need early action to reduce emissions and avoid locking of emission intensive infrastructure. Uh, if we want to uh, get to the, the Paris Agreement uh, uh, targets and to the 1.5 uh, in average increase of the temperature. Uh, so um, this also relates to concerns about energy security, of course, energy poverty, air quality, global warming and economic competitiveness of the different countries. So this is, uh, there. these are really major drivers for this transition. So, and we have seen that in recent studies indicate that we are not uh, on the adequate trajectory to the reduce the emissions, uh, even accounting for the impact of the nationally determined contributions, so the, the, the contributions of each country. So the shift of global capital toward investment in more sustainable infrastructure and services cannot wait. We'll need very significant capital costs to replace the existing um, high greenhouse gas emission technology portfolio by the low carbon technology. So the finance sector has a crucial role here. We have seen they already taken they have already taken big steps towards this, uh, well, supporting the bridge to gap between the, the expiration targets and the current reality. But we need to mainstream this. We have to, to build on this progress and governments need to set out a clear vision of their infrastructure needs and provide the right national, regional and international policy framework. So different agencies, of course, have uh, different uh, roles and perspectives and all, all drawdown solutions depend on individuals choosing to invest their time, energy, finance and uh, thought really to reach drawdown as an objective so and to take part on the energy transition. So I would say that uh, each individual decision can make a difference. Difference. So whether that this is a consumer opting for, I don't know, a rooftop solar panel, you and me, or a company director selecting to invest in a wind offshore farm, for example. Absolutely. Now, we talked about the importance of subsidies in the fossil fuel sector. What about subsidies for renewable energy uh, and in, in the wind, in solar? Um, they, they have played a role. Um, what more needs to be done there? So we have seen that um, international policy, uh, it's important to, to set a long target goal for uh, the development of technologies. So, and uh, therefore we need this overall coordination. 
but of course, each individual country can explore in isolation different uh, policies and different uh, subsidies, let's say. But what we are seeing in several countries is really a move away from expensive subsidies to, uh, to technologies, either uh, so specifically renewable energy technologies, uh, and guaranteeing set prices for generators, uh, for example, natural gas power plant or coal power plants, in favor of competitive auctions and tenders. So a subsidy-free future is now in reach uh, for a number of technologies and geographies. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, um, you've been working in an area where there has been quite a a considerable momentum. Would would you agree that there's some kind of energy revolution taking place, or do you think that's an overstatement? No, I agree completely. So what we are seeing is a rapidly evolution of the energy system. So we have reduction reduction of electric generation technology costs, which promote the rise of the technologies in the system. So we have the start of integration of storage. We have smart grids and smart management management of the energy systems, and we have even a creation of new energy markets uh, with new players, as the prosumers or the energy cooperatives, for example. So the energy revolution uh, will bring. And is already bringing a more flexibility, uh, innovation, uh, collaboration in a smart network of technology and consumers. But of course, this energy revolution in place uh, is bringing additional challenges to the market, especially to the market design. Also, I would say to how to balance their relationships between the different market players and also a need for an evolution of current regulatory and policy regimes. This is crucial, and this is the the thing we have to tackle the most. Yes, since the actual book was uh, published, and since, I guess, the modelling was done, the pace of change hasn't stopped. Uh, Are there a few things that have changed that you think are significant or that particularly make you feel more optimistic? Sure, sure. We have we have been seeing a lot of studies and reports showing uh, um, uh, like a, a really big increase in in some of the renewable energy, specifically now solar energy and the costs of uh, uh, solar and uh, storage uh, systems are are supporting this development. Also, some studies, some uh, presenting projections of uh, an increased adoption to the future if we want to meet these uh, very stringent uh, climate uh, targets. So it's it's promising. We are seeing also development of uh, new technologies, more money put uh, forth to invest in hydrogen systems and on other technology that might be uh, important in the future of the energy system as a whole and, of course, the electric generation sector. And do you see this model, the future, I guess, ecosystem moving more from this large, centralized, you know, integrated energy companies towards a more distributed, independent kind of system? And um, what happens to the energy companies in that scenario, I've, I have seen people saying that, you know, instead of trying to move towards renewable energies to the degrees that they are, that they, some people say they should actually just give the money back to the shareholders now. <laughs> Is there a future for them? <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that uh, a centralized tr- structure of the energy system impedes the incorporation of new players. So it will potentially be always present, the centralized system, but will, will be more and more reduced. Because if a decentralized system uh, for electric generation is fostered, 
probably there is the, the, the vision of an increased democratized access to energy with the reduction of resources conflicts in some locations. Of course, it, the, this the type of system encourage and enable citizens to fully participate and might be more transparent and comprehensible for the consumers. Um, there are, of course, economic benefits too. But regarding the companies, well, this is, this is um, an interesting question because what we are seeing is because the renewable energy transition is also a political struggle. Uh, efforts to shift from fossil fuels and decarbonizing societies will not prove effective without confronting, of course, and destabilizing dominant systems of energy power. And we already see that efforts are, of course, underway from these uh, uh, great players to find ways to reorganize distributed energy flows into aggregated and concentrated stocks of energy and under forms of political power. And even we, we, we have seen in the recent years a number of the large energy companies making the move to embrace and also propel the sustainable emerging energy economy. So companies as EDF, uh, Hortstead, the former Dong, uh, and even some fossil fuel companies. So we have seen Total, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, Equinor, the former Statoil from Norway, are already investing seriously on renewable energy. So we are seeing that uh, as a threat, they, they are seeing some companies are moving on and seeing uh, green energy as a starting um, opportunity for them also. So they are moving to different type of markets because they, they now understand that renewable energy and storage are where the future growth opportunity lies. Yes, um, the money, following the money. And what, sure. what's next for you, João, in terms of your own work and in terms of project drawdowns work um so at Project Drawdown, we are we are starting uh, moving on to the next phases of the the research, uh, trying to bring uh, new people on board to develop uh, and improve the characterization of the solutions, getting new adoption pathways, uh, improve the data sets, in order to in the, the the future to get the the second version of the book and to have published new set of results with new solutions coming uh, onward. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing the fascinating research you've been doing. And uh, it's been a really uh, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play. <laughs>